0: Master of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, today's episode is the fifth episode in our series on social justice. And today the topic is victimhood culture. And I want to begin with a story of a girl named uh, Helena who is featured in the book Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. Abigail tells the story of uh, Helena, who grew up as an angry kid, and uh, she faced uh, the normal struggles that girls face when going through middle school. She uh, began uh, seeing increased difficulties when she uh, was losing friends and becoming uncomfortable with uh, herself. And eventually, through the internet, she discovered a lot of social justice and trans posts, And at first she thought it was ridiculous, but eventually she embraced it. Then she began to explore with some friends her own sexuality and gender and eventually decided that she herself was trans. And here's what Abigail uh, Schreier wrote about this. She said this, quote, And then something magical happened. Helena came out on Tumblr. Her number of followers skyrocketed. Her online friends enthused over her decision to come out and her cute new name. She was freer online than she had been in real life. Social media offered the possibility of an edited persona, of not on, of only showing the best of herself and only when she wanted to. Helena had never been anything but another white girl. Suddenly, she was a member of an oppressed minority." End quote. Why in the world would anyone want to be oppressed? Why would someone desire to be part of a oppressed minority? Why would anyone want to be the victim? This, of course, is the million-dollar question. Ibram X. Kendi is an anti-racist activist and author of several books in the social justice movement. Kendi is very pro-social justice, and I have no doubt that he would not appreciate Uh, my series on social justice here. But I want to read to you something that he tweeted on October 29th, 2021, that is rather revealing. In his now-deleted tweet, Kendi linked to an article from TheHill.com, and he wrote this, quote, more than a third of white students lied about their race on college applications, and about half of these applicants lied about being Native Americans, more than three-fourths of these students who lied about their race were accepted, end quote. Now, this is worth pondering for just a moment. What this article from The Hill is saying is that one-third of white college applicants lied about their ethnicity and pretended to be an ethnic minority, just like Helena wanted to be a uh, part of an oppressed minority group. So, too, these white College applicants wanted to be part of an ethnic minority in their application. So white applicants are pretending to be black or Native American or otherwise, and they are getting into college when they do this. According to the article, 77% of these white students who lied about their ethnicity succeed in getting into college. Kendi deleted his tweet And since last week I told you that we ought to have a charitable spirit and give the benefit of the doubt, I will reserve making any conclusions or judgments on his motivation for deleting the tweet. And to be completely fair to Kendi, there is no way I could read his mind and know why he deleted that particular tweet. But I will observe that whenever he, uh, or whether he realized it or not when he posted it, this study actually undermines... His work on race dynamics in america the study reveals that a sizable portion of the american population at least college age students in this study believe that their chances of getting into college will increase if they are part of an ethnic minority the question that we have to ask ourselves is this if uh white is the privileged class why are people lying to become minorities? Or to go back to our first illustration, if cisgender people are the privileged class in America, why do you suddenly become popular when you join an oppressed group? The irony here is that the oppressed are the ones who have the privilege. Allie Bestucky wrote this. She said, when you elevate victimhood as virtue, you will create a culture in which people are tripping over themselves to be oppressed. Of course, we live in a victimhood culture today. Everybody is a victim, and those who are not victims want to become victims. Uh, The authors of The Coddling of the American Mind defined victimhood culture, and I'm just going to read to you what they wrote. They said, quote, in a 2014 essay, two sociologists, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, explained where this new culture of vulnerability came from and how administrative actions helped it to grow. They called it victimhood culture, and they interpret it as a new moral order that was in conflict with the older dignity culture, which is still dominant in most parts of the United States and other Western democracies, end quote. Then they go on to describe the difference between victimhood culture and dignity culture. Dignity culture is, uh, as they describe it, where people understand that they have value apart from what others think of them. In other words, In dignity culture, you do not need to be affirmed by others. In fact, in dignity culture, you could even be insulted by others, and that's okay because you recognize that ultimately the opinions of others are irrelevant. Let me continue reading from uh, the authors of the book. They say this, quote, In 2013, Campbell and Manning began noticing the same changes on campus that Greg had been noticing, one of the authors, the interlocking set of new ideas about microaggressions, trigger warnings, and safe spaces. They noted that the emerging morality of victimhood culture was radically different from dignity culture. They defined a victimhood culture as having three distinct attributes. First, individuals and groups display high sensitivity to slight. Second, they have a tendency to handle conflicts through complaints to third parties. And third, they seek to cultivate an image of being victims who deserve assistance, end quote. If that does not describe our present day, I do not know what does. We are, to put it lightly, a bit of an overly sensitive generation. We are a culture full of victims. Unless you think that this means I don't believe in the existence of real victims, I do. In fact, I think that the obsession with victimhood culture today actually takes away from the real victim's oppression. There are real victims, but we have to remember that when everybody is a victim, nobody is a victim. Uh, Is there really such a thing as a class of victims, or are we being trained to think in these terms? The authors of The Coddling of the American Mind, again, write this. They say, it's as though some of the students had their own mental prototype, a schema with two boxes to fill, victim and oppressor. Everyone is placed into one box or the other. And that is where we are today, a form of cultural Marxism. Everybody has a tendency to think of people as either an oppressed person or a victim, and nobody wants to be the oppressor. Everyone wants to be the victim. And so I think I'd like to focus kind of for the rest of the time today on the first attribute of victimhood culture that Campbell and Manning know. Once again, they say that this first attribute is this. Individuals and groups display high sensitivity to slight. In other words, people believe that they are victims or that they are oppressed for the most minor and most insignificant reasons imaginable. Again, this takes away from people who really are legitimately oppressed. There is a meme floating around somewhere uh, in internet land. Uh, that says something to the effect of only in America uh, can you find someone drinking a $5 coffee and typing on a $1,000 phone about how oppressed they are. Uh, As an example of this, a couple years ago, a gentleman uh, wrote for a guest column in the Worcester Daily Record, uh, and he wrote about his experience of being black in Worcester, and he tells how he uh, has lived uh, for 60-plus years um he says in this skin and he says truthfully it's still difficult at times he says i go to walmart and women grab their purses and older white males still look at me with suspicion and hate he says i used to ask myself just what have i done to deserve this type of treatment not once have i snatched a purse or said anything to an older white male that was out of line But it is easy to know why this still happens. It is the color of my skin. I cannot accept this as being an okay response to send to another human being. Well, what do we make of this? There are all sorts of people who distrust me, too. Does that mean that I am a victim? Another man recently told me in an effort to demonstrate that he was oppressed, that he feels unsafe to go outside in his neighborhood after dark. Well, there are likewise many neighborhoods that I feel unsafe in. Does that mean that I am oppressed? The problem with saying that people look at you in a certain way or that you feel unsafe in certain neighborhoods And you say that the reason that happens is the color of your skin is actually to engage in the air of mind reading. Again, the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind explain mind reading as this, assuming that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts. He thinks I'm a loser. This fits with what we talked about last time, namely the idea that impact is greater than intent today. Actions are judged by their effect rather than their motivations. So for example, uh, someone might say, I feel like you looked at me in a racist way, and therefore you did look at me in a racist way. Is this the most charitable interpretation? perhaps we should be careful and reserve judgment. One of the reasons that we have become offended at every single thing that happens to us is because, in general, we have expanded the definition of victimhood. Carl Truman makes this observation. He says, Freud has here been used to transform the classic understanding of oppression. One understood In material terms regarding the well-being of the body to one that really focuses on the well-being of the mind. And once oppression becomes primarily psychological, it also becomes somewhat arbitrary and subjective. Then Truman says this, When oppression comes to be thought of as primarily psychological, then victimhood becomes a potentially much broader and much more subjective category. And this is where we are today. If you ever wonder why so many people are claiming to be victims, it is because of a shift in language, a shift in definitions. If oppression can be thought of in psychological terms, then oppression can be whatever you think it is. And if you are oppressed, who am I to say that you're not? Thus, I think that you have here one of the reasons that victimhood has become so popular and simultaneously so hard to refute. When Marxism meets postmodernism meets Freud, we have a recipe for disaster. Since your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, I can never say you're wrong. If you say you are a victim, then that is your truth and you are a victim. There is no room for someone on the outside to come up and correct you or even to ask a question you'll be ousted as a bigot. In fact, if you deny someone's victimhood status, you're engaging in further oppression since you're causing quote-unquote psychological damage. But since that victimhood has a big payout in today's culture, everyone wants to be a victim. This is, of course, the default way of thinking in our current day and age. But it isn't new. Booker T. Washington has a remarkably astute quotation from the book My Larger Education. He said this, this is a little bit of a lengthier quote, but uh, I think if you stick with it, you'll hear uh, exactly what he's trying to say here. He says, quote, There is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, Partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. A story told me by a colored man in South Carolina will illustrate how people sometimes get into situations where they do not like to part with their grievances. In a certain community, there was a colored doctor of the old school who knew little about modern ideas of medicine, but who in some way had gained the confidence of the people and had made considerable money by his own peculiar methods of treatment. In this community, there was an old lady who happened to be pretty well provided with this world's goods and who thought that she had a cancer. For 20 years, she had enjoyed the luxury of having this old doctor treat her for that cancer. As the old doctor became, thanks to the cancer and to the other practice, pretty well-to-do, he decided to send one of his boys to a medical college. After graduating from the medical school, the young man returned home and his father took a vacation. During this time, the old lady who was afflicted with the quote-unquote cancer, called in the young man who treated her. Within a few weeks, the cancer, or what was supposed to be the cancer, disappeared, and the old lady declared herself well. When the father of the boy returned and found the patient on her feet and perfectly well, he was outraged. He called the young man before him and said, "'My son,' I find that you have cured that cancer case of mine. Now, son, let me tell you something. I educated you on that cancer. I put you through high school, through college, and finally through medical school on that cancer. And now you, with your new ideas of practicing medicine, have come here and cured that cancer. Let me tell you, son, you have started all wrong. How do you expect to make a living practicing medicine in that way? I'm afraid that there is a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well, because as long as the disease holds out, they have not an easy means of making a living, but also an easy medium through which to make themselves prominent before the public, end quote. Well, sometimes it pays better. ...to keep all the patients sick and in the hospital, and sometimes it pays to keep white people and black people angry at one another. There are two equal and opposite errors here that we need to be on the lookout for. On the one hand, you have people who think they're victims because they're members of a certain class. These are people who are not actual victims but they think that they are victims. On the other hand, you have people who are also part of a certain class, and because of that, they think they're oppressors, and they need to repent of their oppression, even though they really have never oppressed anyone. The victim, quote-unquote, commits the error of thinking he has no sins of his own to confess, and so he fails to repent and thus walks away from the gospel. The equal and opposite problem is that the, quote-unquote, oppressor commits the error of thinking he is responsible for the sins of others— Consequently, he has no sins of his own to confess, and so he too fails to repent, and thus he walks away from the gospel. While everybody is playing the blame game, nobody gets around to actually repenting of their own sins. C.S. Lewis warns us of the danger of this, and what he calls the danger of national repentance. And he says that repenting for the acts of your nation— uh, or we might say repenting for the acts of others is something that's very dangerous. He says, quote, The young man who is called upon to repent of England's foreign policy is really being called upon to repent the acts of his neighbor. For a foreign secretary or a cabinet minister is certainly a neighbor. And repentance presupposes condemnation. The first and fatal charm of national repentance is therefore the encouragement it gives us to turn from the bitter task of repenting our own sins to the congenial one of bewailing but first of denouncing the conduct of others. End quote. Then Lewis says a little bit later quote, "A group of such young penitents will say, "Let us repent our national sins." What they mean is, let us attribute to our neighbor in the cabinet, wherever we disagree with him, every abominable motive that Satan can suggest to our fancy, end quote. J. Gresham Machin says something similar about how we take uh, our own sins— and forget about them when we are focusing on the sins of others. He says, in time of war, our attention is called so exclusively to the sins of other people that we are sometimes inclined to forget our own sins. Attention to the sins of other people is sometimes necessary. It is quite right to be indignant against any oppression of the weak which is being carried on by the strong. But such a habit of mind, if made permanent, is carried over into the days of peace, has its dangers, it joins forces with the collectivism of the modern state to obscure the individual personal character of guilt. If John Smith beats his wife nowadays, no one is so old-fashioned as to blame John Smith for it. On the contrary, it is said John Smith is evidently the victim of some more of that Bolshevistic propaganda. Congress ought to be called in extra session in order to take up the case of John Smith in an alien and sedition law, quote. This is the problem in victimhood culture. If nothing else, it is a distraction, a huge distraction from actual sin. Victimhood culture teaches us to sin. The first sin is is that we uh, that we have committed is the sin of lying. You are telling people who have never been oppressed in their entire lives that they are oppressed. And you are telling people who have never oppressed anyone in their entire lives that they are the oppressors. Because victimhood culture is not concerned about actual oppression, but only whether or not you are part of an oppressed class. This creates a society that is afraid to say anything for fear of losing their livelihoods. The reason that everyone is walking around in eggshells is partly because spines are in short supply and partly because you can buy a lot of things with 30 pieces of silver. Victimhood culture flourishes because it calls us to indulge our ruling lusts rather than to deny them. The victim and oppressor sign a contract where the victim gets to keep his envy and the oppressor gets to keep his job. This is a sick and twisted anti-gospel. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, what is the solution then? Well, of course, we certainly need to hear the gospel loud and clear. The problem is that victimhood culture has blinded this current generation. Ecclesiastes 7.21 says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. In other words, don't mind what other people say. You are not a victim because someone said something unkind. Instead, offer grace and move on. Someone looks at you the wrong way, someone says something to you the wrong way, move on. Don't take it to heart. Solomon continues with the reason why we ought to show grace in verse 22. He says, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Take into consideration the time that you have not always been gracious to others, and you sometimes have been the one who is actually giving the unkind word or the unkind glare or whatever it might be. And in that situation, what you need to do is remember to be gracious to others because you have done the same thing that they have done to you. Another verse is Proverbs 19.11 that says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Of course, this flies in the face of victimhood culture because victimhood culture is not concerned uh, with dealing with offenses biblically, it is concerned with making a big deal out of an offense. Uh, in fact, many times a bigger deal than is necessary. The Bible is concerned with overlooking offenses. And while there are many more verses we can look at on this topic, we'll look at just one more. Proverbs twenty nine eleven: A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool broadcasts his anger. And the ways that others have offended him. He has no filter. Ultimately, the solution here is to recognize that we are all individually guilty of specific and individual sins. While the world wants us to be obsessed with the sins of our ancestors, or the sins of people with a certain skin color, the Bible calls us to recognize that we ourselves individually and specifically are guilty. The sin is not just out there somewhere, the sin is in here inside of me. As we say frequently at Crossview Church, and this is of course not unique to me, but as we have said many times before, we are not the good people. We need the gospel. And if you have become distracted from your own sin by blaming others, I encourage you to look at your own sins, confess those to the Lord. This is what we call the Christian doctrine of repentance. We recognize our guilt and we confess that to the Lord and turn away. The corollary to repentance is faith, faith in Christ. We don't earn salvation by penance. We receive salvation freely by faith in the gospel, by faith in Christ. And so if you don't know Christ as Savior, I would encourage you today to repent and believe in the gospel. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Moreno, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.